The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Well, take your Bibles again to the book of Ephesians. We'll read again together, Ephesians chapter 1, we'll read all the way down to uh, verse number 23, the whole chapter. And I'm reading from a New American Standard, and it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an, an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory." In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, And your love for all the saints do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints." And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray.
Loving Father, as we come before your word again, we ask you, O God, for help. Father, we pray again that the Spirit of God would teach us the word of God, would teach us the truth of the word of God. Father, we pray, too, that he would have freedom to convict us and challenge us, provoke us, O God, to walk closely with the Lord Jesus Christ, to be men and women of prayer. Father, we ask you for your help in these things. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Ceaseless prayer for spiritual growth is not a duty. It's a vital necessity. I find it interesting as you read through the Bible that Jesus did not teach his disciples to preach. He didn't teach them to conduct services. He didn't teach them to do a whole lot of things. But he taught them several times in several places how to pray. It is the vital necessity of the Christian life is a life of ceaseless prayer. It's one of the neat things about Paul as you read his letters and you take time to read and study some of the prayers he offered and the deep, rich things that he prayed on behalf of the people of God to whom he was ministering. Now, in the book before us, he's writing in about 62 A.D. from house arrest in Rome to the Ephesians, and his main theme in this letter is the new creation of God, the believer as God's new creation with new life in Christ, and the church as God's new community of believers in Christ. Now, he's just finished in verses 3 to 14 in a great eulogy to God, a great expression of praise to God, a blessing to God for the glory of His grace in creating new creatures in Christ. That eulogy could have been written to any Christian and all Christians all over the globe. But now in verse 15, he sort of turns his attention and he reminds the Ephesian believers of his prayers for them. They're motivated by his knowing the work of God. Paul's prayers are motivated for them by his knowing the work of God that has begun in them and the hearing of the Ephesians, their faith and their love. It's likely been a few years since he's seen the Ephesian believers. And you have to ask yourself the question, what moved Paul to pray? Ask the same question of us. What moves and challenges us to pray? When we in our contemporary Christianity tend to use physical infirmities and frailties and material needs as motives and pushers to pray for each other. Take time this week. Go through your prayer list and see what you pray for. There's usually health concerns. There's traveling mercies, relational issues. There's material needs. And don't misunderstand. Those are all valid, good things to pray for. We should pray for those things. They're all legitimate prayer concerns. But what about ceaseless prayer for spiritual growth in our lives and the lives of others in this church and wherever we go, wherever we meet believers? When I read Paul's prayers and you think about some of the condition that some of the churches he was writing to and what is strikingly absent from his prayers is prayers for their health, 
for their protection in that sense, for their material prosperity. What you find over and over and over again is prayer for their spiritual growth, that they would grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would commend to you a book uh, by D.A. Carson, uh, Praying Paul's Prayers. I just finished it uh, a week and a half ago. It's an excellent book. And he goes through all these prayers of Paul's, not all of them, but a selection of them, and expounds and shows us our need and why we should pray the things that Paul prayed for. Paul had a care and a love for the Ephesians to look and see what was going on in their lives, to see how they were doing spiritually. He was concerned about far more than their physical, material health and wealth. Paul was concerned to find out more about how they were doing spiritually. Now, wouldn't, he would have had an easy excuse, wouldn't he? He's all the way over in Rome. He's in house arrest. He's chained to soldiers, perhaps, maybe loose in a house, but still he's confined. And even before that, while he's still traveling around, all the demands of his apostolic ministry, he could say, you know, I just don't have time to pray for everybody. But as you read the epistles... What you will find is he mentions over and over again that he is praying ceaselessly. He's often in prayers. He's making mention of them in his prayers. He was a man of prayer. That part comes all through his letters. Paul's love for his readers drove him to find out how they were doing that he might pray for them. Listen, the easiest thing for us to do in this church or any other church, is to maintain a superficial level of love and care for each other. We do it. I don't want to offend anybody. You're walking in out the door. How you doing? Oh, fine, Pastor. Great sermon, Pastor. Oh, thank you. How you doing? Oh, I'm great, Pastor. How you doing? And I kind of wonder as I'm shaking people's hands as they're walking by me on Sunday morning, how many of you are lying to me? I didn't mean about the sermon. I meant about how you're doing personally. Although you may lie about the sermon too. That's okay. It's so easy in a church where we don't want to intrude on someone else's life. It's so easy to look and say, you know, he looks like he's doing okay. And, you know, she looks like everything's fine in her life. And, and I don't want to get in their, in their space and in their face and say, hey, you know, how are you doing in your walk with the Lord? And if we do that, if we just leave everybody's space unencroached on, unencroached on, and we're happy to say, you know, I'm doing fine, you know, I'm doing okay, and we put up the great big shield in front of us that's got this perfect Christian picture painted on one side that everybody else can see, but we can see on the other side that things aren't going well. The wheels are coming off the wagon. I like the Aussie statement, everything's going pear-shaped. It's just kind of falling apart. But we can't do that if we're going to grow in spiritual maturity. We have to be willing to pull down those walls and say, you know what, I'm struggling in my faith. You know, I'm walking, but you know, I, I, I just don't feel like I'm growing. You know, please pray for me because I'm wrestling with my thoughts. I see a pretty girl walk by and my mind just goes where it's not supposed to go. You know, I'm wrestling with this 
pressure to, to achieve and get as much money and material possessions. And I find myself driven for so many hours of my day to build up my wealth and build up my material possessions. And, you know, my Bible sits on a shelf day after day after day after day. I pull it off on the seventh day, dust it all off, bring it to church, open up, look good, put it back on the shelf when I go home. And if we're willing to do that as a Christian church, we will stay exactly the way we are week in and week out, and growth will just slide to a stop. As long as you're willing to say, how are you doing? Oh, you know I'm doing just fine. It'll stay that way. Paul was willing to find out. I don't know how he found out. Their faith and their love was heard enough that Paul could say, you know what, I've heard about your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints, and I do not cease to give thanks and to make mention of you in my prayers. He knew what was going on. Paul was motivated by love for Christ and love for his people, his churches, those he'd reached to. To pray for them. Paul knew the work of God's grace begun. Look what it says in verse 15. For this reason, I too. This reason, what's he referring to? Two things. Number one, it's the whole section before that. Everything he's just said. Knowing in mind that God has chosen you for salvation. Knowing for this reason that God... That the Lord Jesus Christ has saved you. For this reason, I know that the Spirit of God has sealed you. For this reason... It's all those things that God's work has done. It's the work of God's grace begun in their believer's life. He's fully mindful of that. But it's something else too. Notice he says, for this reason, and then the verse right before that, two verses before that, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit in Christ who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. If you take that, then look at the things he's praying for down in verses 18 and 19 that you may know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and the surpassing greatness of his power. You could say, Paul is fully mindful that having begun this walk, they are now to walk this life of Christian faith all the way until when Christ returns or they die and go to be with him like dear brother Tuin did. And he is mindful, for this reason I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you're going to keep walking with the Lord. I'm going to pray that the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that you will know those things. I'm going to pray that God, the Father of glory, will give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I'm going to keep praying these things because these things will help you to grow. I will plead with God that you will grow up. I have a prayer list. And the more I preach the gospel and the more I read the Bible and the more I see my own life in the mirror of God's word, my prayer list is slowly changing. And I have two things beside most names, salvation slash spiritual growth. Because sometimes I can't say for a certainty, I don't know whether that person's saved or not. There is some evidence, but there's some contrary evidence too. And so I don't know. So what I will do is I will plead with God that God will save them. And if they are truly saved, that God will cause them to grow. That their lives will be changed by the power of the Spirit of God and the power of the Word of God. I put beside my life, Lord, cause me to grow. Lord, continue your work of grace in my life that I might grow up. 
in Christ. We all are in this game together, this, this walk together. I haven't arrived anywhere. Just because I have a name, pastor or elder or something before my name, doesn't mean anything about arriving. It means I'm just trying to set an example for how it should be. I have to live my life and I am struggling with things in my life I don't mind admitting. And you can pray for me and I will pray for you. Paul, motivated by love for these people, he saw and he was concerned enough to ask them. He prays for their spiritual growth. He looks also for the fruit of God's grace. Notice what he says. He heard of their faith in God. That's a work of grace. Every expression of faith that you have in God is proof that God's grace is at work in your life. No matter how small. I don't want to stumble people by having you always question your salvation. I want you to realize that if you see a tiny spark of life in your Christian life, if you see the work of grace, no matter how small it is, it's proof that there's life there. And it's my goal to see us together as a church blow gently on that little spark that it might burst into a a hot flame and burn for Christ and grow into a roaring fire that pronounces the gospel and lives for God wherever he goes, wherever she goes. Paul heard of their faith. That's a work of God's grace. Paul heard of their love, and that's a proof of God's work in their lives. Faith and love are true evidences of God's work of grace in us. I don't mean faith when it's easy. I mean faith when faith is not the natural response. I mean love when love is not the natural response. I've said it before. There are some people in this world that are so easy to love. You say, well, it's my wife, for example. It's not hard to love her because she's a lovely person. There are other people in our lives, and all of you can think of somebody who's not easy to love. And these Christians, these Ephesians, have a love for all the saints, even in a church which is mixed between Jewish and Gentile believers. And there was always an animosity and and a tension between them, and that they had a love for each other. That love is evidence of the work of God going on. Galatians 5 verse 6 says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. It's faith working itself out in love for each other. Love to see the truth in each other. Love to see each other grow. Love that's willing to come alongside somebody and say, You know, I saw something in your life. And with great fear and trembling, I'm here to say, you know what, brother or sister, I think you need to think about this. You know, brother, you know, sister, I I think you need to have a look at what's going on here. I notice a pattern of behavior in your life that suggests you have some work to do. And you get alongside that person and you work with them and you encourage them and you help them wisely and carefully with great fear and trembling, lest you be taken by the same sin and dragged down. But it's love worked out, faith working itself out through love. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Everything we do in ministry 
is designed with a goal in mind that our faith in Christ might increase and our love for each other, our love for God, our love for our neighbors, and even our love for our enemies might grow and increase. That's what it's all about. That's what we're trying to accomplish only through the power of the Holy Spirit and only through the preached Word of God. Seeing and hearing the evidence of God's grace and faith and love at work is a common concern of Paul's. He says in Colossians 1, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. In Philemon 5, he says this, Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus. First Thessalonians 1 verse 3, same idea again. He says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prayed for them, knowing God's work in them. Paul prayed for them, seeing the fruit of God's grace in their lives. We also... Brothers and sisters, we also must pray for each other, seeing the evidences of God's grace in our lives. If our prayer for each other in spiritual terms only is when someone trips and falls, that's a serious problem. Rather, our prayer for each other in spiritual growth ought to be all the time, ceaseless, whether they're doing well or not whether they're struggling or whether they're enjoying great growth and great spiritual fruit in their lives. In love, we pray for the work of God to continue in us. He prayed for them ceaselessly. Now, ceaselessly doesn't mean that Paul did nothing but kneel on the floor and pray all day long, all night long for the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians, and all the rest of them. He was busy. He was making tents. He was out preaching the gospel. He was arguing with the Jews and and reasoning with the Greeks. He was out there doing ministry all the time. So what does he mean when he says in verse number 16, I do not cease giving thanks while making mention of you my prayers. Our prayer life has to include basically two parts. Number one, there needs to be, there's got to be a regular set time and we stop with a list of prayer requests and we sit down and we work our way through it. We ask God for those things. We plead with God for the spiritual growth of each other. We deal with the physical needs, the health issues, the travel, those things. That's a set time. You say, well, you know, I I just pray as I go. Trust me, from, well, whatever it is now, 30-something years' experience, I can honestly say, if you don't establish a prayer time that's set where you regularly come before the Lord and open that prayer list and in determination you pray through it, you will never develop the ongoing prayer life. It just flows like breathing. But I'll tell you this much, if you do the one, the other will flow right out of it. I know I can get so little done in that office back there if I don't start with prayer. My work just gets goes messy and sideways. I can accomplish things, but nothing of lasting value. But when I stop and I push everything aside, and sometimes you get in a bit of a panic because there's so much to do, and you're kind of running, and the clock just seems to go faster and faster, and you think, oh, you know, I'll pray as I go. I'll put this aside. I'll just keep working, and I'll pray, and I'll come back to that. No. I put everything else aside. In fact, sometimes I find my office more of a distraction than a help. When I come in here, I stand behind here, and there's, the room is empty, and I pray out loud. 
There's no one else around. There's just my prayer list and my Bible, and I pray out loud. And that regular disciplined time of prayer then feeds into the rest of my day. And whenever the Lord brings Con to mind, or Dave to mind, or, or somebody else, Russ to mind, my brother in Canada, I just can pray. There's an attitude and a, a life lived in prayer. Listen, Christian. Prayer ought to be to us as natural as breathing. And we stop. And it doesn't have to be long King James prayers. Simple prayers. Lord, protect Poovan while he's flying to Singapore. Lord, work through the scriptures that Sunith will open today to encourage his heart and build him up. Takes, what, three seconds? But that natural response of prayer. That's what Paul means. He says he doesn't cease praying. As the Lord brings them to mind, he keeps praying for them and he just keeps going on. Yeah, he has prayer lists. I'm sure of it. But he also exercised prayer like breathing. Ceaselessly, Paul mentioned them to God in his prayer. For prayer, Paul, prayer was just like breathing. Listen. Just thinking about this first verse here, verse 15. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. There's one thought I could not get out of my mind as I was preparing. Every time I read that verse, the same thought came to mind. Listen, Noble Park, what are we known for? What are we known for as Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church? The Ephesians were known for their faith in Christ, and their love for each other. I'm not asking you to give me an answer. I'm asking you just to think about it long and hard. What are we known for? We can be known for doctrinal integrity. We preach the truth. We stand by the truth. We're great with the truth. We never let go of it. We're always searching the Scriptures to know better the truth. And Paul says, if I can preach all the mysteries and all those things of God, and I have not love... I want to bring a gong in here and do this. It's like a banging gong. Just boom. It's, it's painful and noisy and doesn't help anybody. If we don't have the love and the faith that he's talking about here, doctrinal integrity, as great as it is and as important as it is, it becomes a banging gong and a clanging cymbal. Brothers and sisters in Christ, look, we're a church. We're a body of community, body of people, a community of saints. What are we known for? What should we be known for? My prayer as an elder and as a pastor of this church is that we would be known for our faith in Christ and our love for each other. It's easy to say. Two words, one syllable each. Faith, love. When we start putting into real practice, that's a whole lot different. And it will get uncomfortable. And it might get messy at times. But when we genuinely love each other the way that Christ loved His disciples and taught us to love each other, it will radically change this world. I heard uh, Tim Keller telling a story about when he was a, a college student. And he said they, they, their evangelism was not a big part of their, their Christian college group. He said, but every week they would grow by 5 and 10 and 15 people and this, this like spread of gospel influence across the campus he was in. He said, we didn't go out in street corners and preach the gospel. We weren't handing out tracts. 
We weren't doing any of that kind of stuff. We were just coming together to pray. And every week, God was bringing new people in. And they were hearing the gospel and getting saved. And they were bringing other new people in. He said, what it came right down to was the love that we had for each other as believers. Just, Just simple young believers trusting in Christ. And the love we had for each other. And the faith we had in Christ. The gospel just spread through those two things. Brothers and sisters in Christ... What are we known for? We should be known for several things. The glory of God in everything we do. Are we striving for that? That should be one goal. Number two goal is out of love for each other, everything we do, for love for God, for our neighbor, and for our enemies, and for each other. We should be striving in everything to do to increase the faith of the other believers that they might grow up and be changed. Are we known for that? That's not an easy question to answer. I don't want you to shout out an answer. I want you to go home and give it some serious thought. Boil it down a bit. What are you as a believer in Christ known for? That's a hard question. I don't mind admitting that I feel very uncomfortable asking it because in asking you, I am, it demands that I ask myself the same question. What am I known for? They were known for their faith and their love. What moves us to pray? Do we pray for the things that Scripture teaches us to pray for? Do we in love for each other look to see the evidences of God's grace and work in our lives? Do we in love for each other pray for each other, pleading for God's increased work in each other to bring us to maturity in spiritual life? Do we pray for the gifts of God's grace necessary for spiritual growth. I think God is just longing to pour out those gifts on us if we would turn around and cry out for them. But we're so stubborn, I speak for myself, we're so stubborn that we think we can do it on our own and we just keep striving on our own. But Paul says, you know what? I'm praying that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. So secondly, we pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Well, how is it that we grow spiritually? Is growth in Christian spiritual life a natural thing? Will it just happen like a baby? You know, you you feed a baby and you change a baby and make the baby sleep and they grow. Anybody who has kids knows it happens shockingly fast. But a spiritual life is different. It doesn't grow like that. It's not a natural thing. It needs to be by the power of the Spirit of God and by the influence of the Word of God, the Word of God in the life of the believer, and that the power of the Spirit of God might take that Word of God and cause it to grow. It has to be fed that way. Growth requires the continued work of God's grace in the heart and the life of the believer. Paul, knowing the work of God begun in them, Paul, seeing the fruit of that spiritual life, he encourages them by relating that he prays ceaselessly for him. For them. Now notice the text in verse number 17. Paul prayed that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. He prayed that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened to know, and we'll look at several things later. How do we understand verse 17? Okay, it's not an easy verse to kind of unravel, especially the latter part. So we won't worry about the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. We're just going to worry about may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Firstly, is Paul speaking of God giving us 
a spirit or the spirit. Now, if you have an NIV and an ESV, you'll probably have the, and you probably have spirit with a capital S. My NASB has a and a spirit with a small s. Scripture describes wisdom and revelation as gifts of the Holy Spirit. For example, in Exodus 31, verse 3, uh, this, God speaking to Moses says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and all kinds of craftsmanship. Wisdom and understanding is part of the Spirit of God's gifts. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8, the Bible says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So we can safely conclude that it's best understood as the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. But that, of course, raises another question, because if that's true, what he's saying here is, um, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. If he's saying that, is he asking for the spirit to be given to them again? And we looked at this two weeks ago, and we concluded from Scripture that the spirit of God is given to the believer once in their life. They are sealed with the Spirit at the moment they believe in God. So how do we understand may give them the Spirit? It can't be contradictory. It has to agree. We are told, we know from Scripture that there's only one baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we are to seek for an ongoing increase in the influence of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, what's he say? Do not be drunk with wine. Wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And we saw two weeks ago how that means to be, to have an increase in the influence of the Holy Spirit. I gave you an analogy. It's like the, the Spirit of God is like a fire. The moment you believe in Christ, a fire is in a sense lit inside of you. But when you lean over with fire and you lean and go, and blow on that fire, the fire is the same fire. It's burning the same wood. It's in the same spot. But that fire all of a sudden becomes brighter and hotter. And the influence of that fire is dramatically increased in that moment. So when he says here in verse uh, 16, sorry, verse 17, he may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation or the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The best way to understand it is Paul is praying for this. He and we are to pray that the Spirit's influence will increase, giving us greater spiritual wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Okay, so he doesn't give the Spirit to us again. He doesn't baptize us again with the Spirit. There's one baptism that happens the moment you're saved. But we pray, we cry out to God, like he says in Ephesians 5.18, we cry out to God, that he would increase the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that will in turn give us spiritual wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Now, what does he mean by the last part, in the knowledge of Christ? How are we to understand that? What type of knowledge is he talking about? Now, there are three types of knowledge that I can figure out in Scripture and in life. Okay, number one, there's 
theoretical knowledge. Um, my brother is an electrician. He works in high voltage like stadiums and, and railways and that sort of thing in airports. And he knew theoretically that 347 volts going from this hand all the way through and out this hand would really hurt. He knew it theoretically. One day he discovered it experientially. He somehow grabbed a live wire and he got 347 volts through his whole body. He was electrocuted. He didn't die, but he was electrocuted. He knew it theoretically. I know that theoretically. I'm sure it would hurt. And he said, yeah, it really hurts when it goes through you. And it literally cooked tissue all the way through his body. It was caused a lot of problem for him. He then had a knowledge that was based on both experience and information. But there's also a third type of knowledge in Scripture. It's knowing something from both information and experience and also deep reflection and deep thinking. We think through something, we wrestle with something, and we know it, we understand it by consideration and reflection on truth. But what Paul is talking about here, and he says, in the knowledge of Christ, what he's talking about is this first, the second one, the experiential knowledge and the informational knowledge working together. We heard the gospel message of truth and information. We trusted in Christ for salvation. We put what we heard into physical activity. We actually acted upon it, and we experienced what it is to know Christ. We walk with Christ day by day, and we are learning from him a little bit as we walk along along the way. The word Paul uses here is the word epignosis. And don't laugh at my Greek pronunciation. It just means knowledge or full, true, real, experiential knowledge. A knowledge that is completed and enriched by actual experience. It's a growing knowledge. It's never going to be complete. Why? Because the more we walk with Christ, the more our experience grows. The more we walk, the more it grows and just keeps on going. All the way until we come face to face with Christ at the end of the age, when Christ comes back for his people. It's a growing knowledge. The Bible talks about in Ephesians 4.13 about how we are working towards attaining this true, full knowledge. In Philippians 1.19, Paul prays that their love will abound in real knowledge and discernment. It's the same experiential knowledge. Colossians 1.9-10 says this, listen. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His all, His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, increasing in the experiential knowledge of God. So you put it all together, those two parts of the verse. Paul is praying that God will increase the Spirit's influence, giving them greater spiritual wisdom and revelation from a growing experiential knowledge of Christ. That's a lot of words. What's it look like? That might be an easier way to explain it. What's it look like? As I walk with Christ every day, trusting Him and following Him and obeying Him, hearing His words through Scripture, as I walk with Christ, 
list that part. As I walk with him, praying and giving thanks and seeking his counsel and prayer, learning to love what he loves and hate what he hates, learning as I walk with Christ, ever growing in my fear of the Lord, ever growing in my awe of his person ever growing in my amazement at his works, ever growing in my reverence and respect for him as my Savior and my God. I am learning by experience of being with him as his disciple. It's like an apprenticeship. Who here has ever served an apprenticeship? Oh, a couple. Yeah, good on you. I was a carpenter's apprentice, and uh, I had this horrible problem. Give me a nail. Give me a hammer, and I would hit my thumb every single time. I hit my thumb, and I, I literally hit it so hard one day, I split it and drove the nail out between both sides of my finger. And my boss kept saying, keep your eye on the nail. Trust me, I'm trying, man. And, and finally I got the hang of it. And I discovered as my skill and my experience using those tools, working alongside a master carpenter, got better and better. And I hit my thumb less and less. I hardly ever do it now. But you know what? It's a process of apprenticeship. I'm walking alongside a master carpenter. He's showing me how to use the tools, how to use a framing square, and how to use a saw, and how to use a, a, a plane and a chisel, and all those different tools. And at first, I come home with cuts and bruises, and, and I was falling off roofs and all kinds of terrible things. I wasn't a good carpenter. Um, but eventually, as time went on, I got better at it. Why? Because my theoretical knowledge and my experiential knowledge was growing and my understanding of my master carpenter, he was kind of a hard-nosed German guy, I hope he's not listening to the tape, and, and he, he was a bit difficult to get along with. But I got to know him, understand him, and together we walked side by side as I learned the trade of carpentry. It's the same in walking side by side with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like you take a, an ox, they train oxes, oxen, 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 they put a yoke and they put a, a big old granddaddy oxen in beside a little calf oxen. And they put the yoke across the two shoulders of the oxen, they put the bow around their neck and put the pins through the bow. And the guy gets behind the oxen and he cracks the whip and he says, uh, in America they do he and y'all. And one means left, one means right. And so the, the guy cracks the whip and the, the young calf all skittish and the oxen begins to move and the, the guy yells, he or whatever it is, and the old oxen turns. And the little oxen, legs, are, you know, swinging around, he goes with him. And then he, they yell, the, crack the whip and yell the other thing and the little oxen still goes the same way and the big oxen turns back and they all stumble over each other. But as they walk side by side together, over a period of time, the two oxen begin to move perfectly in sequence as the master cracks the whip and shouts the commands. The old oxen moves because he understands. And the young oxen begins to move alongside of him. And they walk side by side together. Their experiential knowledge grows. It's the same with us walking with Christ day by day as we walk with him it grows at the very same time God through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives increases our wisdom and our revelation of Christ. We learn more about Him. We learn more how to walk like Him. 
We learn more to be like Christ as he does it. It's not just through walking by experience. It's not just by information. It's also by the power of the Spirit of God working in our lives. So Paul says, I pray that the Father of glory may give, may increase in you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the experiential knowledge of him. Take your Bibles. Go to the book of Isaiah. encouragement for you if you like to study the Bible. Um, the very f- first time I ever did a, I wanted to study my Bible and just learn something more than just reading it, I decided to do a word study. You never guess what word it was. It was the word no, K-N-O-W. And it opened up a world to me. And I did it in this passage here. And I actually preached, I think, my first sermon on Isaiah 1, 1 to 3. Get into the Word of God. Do the word studies. They will open up a world of understanding for you. Listen to this. Isaiah is writing and he says this, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. You know what he's saying? An ox. Oxen are not known for their wisdom intelligent. The phrase, dumb ox, comes to mind. I used to hear that a lot when I was a kid. You're a dumb ox. You don't know much. But an ox knows its owner by the experience of working with that owner, going out to the field and back to the field day in and day out. He learns his owner's voice. He learns his owner's commands. Look at the donkey. He says a donkey knows its master's manger or master's crib, the place where he gets his feeding. The donkey is so used to, he knows by experience where he will get his next meal from. And so every time he's led to the manger, he goes willingly and steadily because he's used by experience to feeding from his master's hand. And then you see the heart of God begin to break. But... Israel does not know, and the word is no by experience. They don't know me. The Lord rescued them from Egypt. He redeemed them with an outstretched hand. The Lord gathered them together and made them into a nation of kings and priests. The Lord led them through the wilderness by His Holy Spirit. The Lord fed them with manna from heaven. He watered them with water from a rock. He gave them judges and priests and leaders and prophets and kings and wise men. He gave them His word, His law, His will, and His ways. He gave them the Shekinah presence of God hovering over the Ark of the Covenant. And he writes late in their history, my people don't know me. That's a tragedy. That's a massive tragedy. All that God did for those people, and yet he could write at the end of it all, don't know me. No experience of me whatsoever. They still go their own way. And the greater tragedy is that we may be just like them. That's the danger for us. 
We know the information. We know the facts. We know the Bible stories. We know the verses of Scripture. I can ask a question about a spiritual truth and you can rattle off an answer as easy as you like. You can quickly just snap it off. You know the hymns. You can sing them with great gusto while thinking about something completely different. We know others that know Him. But my question this morning for us is this. Do we know God? Paul could pray in his life in Philippians chapter 3 that I may know Him. It's the same word, know by experience. Paul prays for God to give him the increased influence of His Holy Spirit in wisdom and revelation from knowing Christ. So what's the answer? To despair? No. A thousand times no. Don't despair. Pray. He's praying for them in Ephesians chapter 1 that they, that God will give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge or coming from the knowledge of Christ. So what's the answer? We cry out to God on behalf of each other, on behalf of me and on behalf of you, that we will know Christ. We pray ceaselessly that God would increase the influence of the Holy Spirit. We pray that all of us, would know an ever-increasing influence of God's Holy Spirit. We pray, brothers and sisters, for each other that we would know the Lord and we pray that we would know Him not simply by facts and information, that we would know Him by the experience of walking with Him. We would pray that our weaknesses and our sicknesses might be greatly used of God to know Him more. We are so quick to pray, Lord, make me feel better. Take away my pain. Take away my hurts and my suffering. I read something at the funeral yesterday morning. It was not my words. They were John Piper's words. And it was, don't waste this hour of a funeral service. Well, Piper says a lot more in a sermon. He says basically, don't waste your sicknesses. Don't waste your heartaches and your sorrows and your struggles. We're so quick to pray that God will remove certain pains and difficulties from our lives. But listen to this. Is it possible that God takes us into those valleys of pain and struggle and sickness and tiredness and financial trouble on whatever it might be in order to walk through that valley with Him, hand in hand, experiencing His presence in the middle of the bottom of that valley. How much better to go through the darkest valley with Christ, learning more of Him through the Holy Spirit who's giving us the spiritual wisdom and revelation in those experiences of walking beside Christ than to never walk a dark valley and never have more than a remote, fainting knowledge of God. So much better. Listen, don't waste your sicknesses. Don't waste your heartaches and your sorrows and your struggles. Walk through all of them with the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing and experiencing His presence, His comfort, His teaching. I listened to uh, John MacArthur driving here this morning. I, I, my day didn't go well. started at 4.15 and computers and printers were arguing with each other and not getting along and things were printing funny and, and it was just a bad morning. 
I thought, oh, I just, I'm driving along. Not a good way to come to church, by the way. And so I thought, I'll put something on to listen to, to just kind of clear my head. And I was praying as I was driving along. And he was preaching on 2 Corinthians 1 about Paul talking about the God of all comfort. He said one of the great promises of the struggle of this Christian life, the struggle of Christian ministry is when we struggle through those things that the God of comfort comes alongside and gives us the comfort that we need to carry on and finish the race. We're so quick to pray, Lord, get me out of this mess that we fail to realize that God has taken us into that mess for a reason. And it's not just so we can get beaten up and come out and learn nothing. He's taking us through those valleys to put us into that mess so that we can learn by the experience of walking with Him, knowing His presence, knowing His comforting Word, knowing the love of the saints as they gather around us and pray us through that valley. But we're so quick to go, oh, just get me out of it. We fail to realize it's like the, the caterpillar in the cocoon, right? You, you see him fighting like a mad? Oh, I'll do him a favor. I'll let him loose. And you break open the cocoon, and what's the, the thing do? Dies. Because now it hasn't struggled. Its wings don't have the muscles. He can't fly, and he dies. God leaves us in those valleys. Yeah, we pray for each other that God will give us the grace to get through it. That God will give us the comfort of his presence as we walk through those valleys. We pray, brothers and sisters, for each other. We pray like Paul did. Pray that God will give us the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the experiential knowledge of walking with Christ day by day. What's your prayer life like? And I ask you that question because I have to ask it of myself. Every single preacher I've ever met, pastor, they'll all say the same thing. My prayer life is fair to Midland and could be a lot better. And I confess I'm no different. My prayer life could be a lot better. What sort of changes would we see in this church if you and I were committing ourselves to praying not just for the health, the wealth, the prosperity, the comfort, and the material things that we all want. But we were committed to praying for each other for the spiritual growth that God longs to build into our lives. How much different would our love for each other be? How much different would our faith in Christ be? plead with you like I plead with myself. Read through those prayers of Scripture. Take them. I... I have a booklet in my office. It's got like this on it. Just prayers of Scripture written out. And I literally use them and just pray these things. I figure, you know, if God inspired prayers like this in His Word... Wouldn't it be wise to pray those things? To plead with God that we might have them? And plead with God that He might grow us through those things? So that whether we're rich or poor, we're walking with the Lord, knowing Him. Whether we're sick and dying, or healthy 
and doing great, we would know the Lord and walk with Him. Wouldn't that be better? Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing our last song for the morning.